Hello and welcome to Jolt Radio's On the Record and Off the Wall. I'm Buzz Fleischman. Today, our regular theme song is not as appropriate as the rendition comedian Gene Marola wrote for our guest, Major League Baseball trainer Barry Weinberg. Give a listen. Welcome to our show. As Gene Marola's tune about his friend Barry Weinberg has just told us, Barry has over 40 years working in professional baseball as an athletic trainer from the minors to the World Series. In all that time, he's never eaten at home, taking breakfast, lunch, and dinner at fine restaurants in cities where his teams have played, and that means all over the United States. He's authored a book, Eating My Way Through Baseball, which we'll talk about in depth. As athletic trainer for the New York Yankees, Oakland A's, and St. Louis Cardinals, he has met, befriended, and dined with the most amazing people. Here he is, Edith and Harold's only son. Let's affectionately call him Uncle Barry. Welcome! Oh, thank you very much. Thanks, Buzz. I appreciate you having me. This is this is very interesting, Barry, for not only people who love baseball, but for people who eat. I guess that includes everybody. That's right. You know, first of all, I, I wanted to correct you uh, that you said um, some of the finest, I ate at the finest restaurants. Some of them weren't so fine along the way, too. You know what I mean? But uh, sometimes the dyes that you find and the, the, the least expected are the, are the most fun and the, and the, and the, the best. Truly, and, and, and in those times, you were able to kind of let your hair down as well as the, the, the guys that, that came with you. Yeah, yeah, that's, I've been very fortunate. To, uh, and like you said, I, I, uh, I don't cook. And one of the first sentences of the book is, I don't cook, nor do I try. Yeah. And uh, so I have eaten out, and people always tease me about, hey, what's in your refrigerator? How many bottles of water? That's probably the extent of, you know, and... Uh, by cooking now, I can reheat. I'm, I'm very excellent at reheating, you know, leftovers. So it's a skill. It's all skill. Yeah. Hey, speaking about skills, as a as a trainer, you have uh, you've gotten in in the inner 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 circle of baseball, a place where no one goes, and that's where some of the most amazing stories have come out. The training room, yeah. because yeah, no one. You know, no one's allowed yeah. in that training room, are they? No, I think uh, 
as Joe Buck put in the in the, um, in, in the forward that the athletic trainer is not only the, the hairdresser and 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 your barber and, you know uh, and the nurse and you know plays so many roles that you listen to so many things and and yes you are in the inner circle and it, it, it makes you privy to a, a lot of things which which gains your trust and I think the the most important thing in sports and and in any industry I think is is when you work with somebody that you've gained their trust and I think I hope along the way that I've gained the people's trust that I work with and and they they were confident in my abilities but then also confident in my knowledge and and um, the ability for me to uh, to uh, 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 communicate with them Sure. So first, you needed to be skillful in your position. When you went to Indiana University and and you had grad work after that, Uh you only had two good grades in college. I always tease that I only got two good grades in college. One was in care and prevention of athletic injuries, and one was in first aid. So I figured I better do something in that profession. So that's why I choose athletic training. And actually, I had a, a real affection for athletic training. I I took some courses at Springfield College in Springfield, Massachusetts, that were at, uh, through uh, like Charlie Redmond, who's one of my mentors in athletic training, and he taught first aid. And actually, when I went to school at uh, Springfield, uh, going to grad school, there was only only three schools in the country that gave a degree in athletic training, Indiana, Indiana State, and and um, Arizona, and I chose Indiana, and so I was very fortunate to do that. You know, sometimes it's amazing the choices that you make determine the life you lead sometimes, and, and uh, I was very fortunate to choose Indiana and, and had a terrific experience in the athletic training field, working with two unbelievable coaches. The first one was Lee Corso. Uh, was the first coach was football, my first job, and the second job was uh, was uh, basketball for a gentleman named Bobby Knight. Bobby Knight, basketball, yeah. Yeah, I think you've heard of him. I think everybody's heard of Bobby Knight. He's, he was terrific. He was, he, he, you know, we've become very, very good friends, and uh, we speak, oh, you know, uh, quite often now. And uh, at the time, you know, you're a 22 year old uh, graduate student, you know, and and here's this this man is six foot five, and he's you know uh, uh, powerful and, and intimidating, and then you find out, um, you know, uh, what a brilliant coach he was, and then all of a sudden, what a good friend he's become. He was a big guy, and and so is Frank Howard, because when you yeah. grew up in Silver Spring, Maryland. Uh, you say your life changed when Frank yeah. Howard, that, the slugger, moved in across the street. Yeah, he was um, he was my neighbor, and uh, I, I took the I had the guts to walk up and knock on the door and ask if I could babysit because I knew he had four kids there. So so uh, they they said sure, you know they I babysat for him, and then he got to understand my love of baseball, and uh, he took me he take me to the ball ball games with him sometimes and I'd sit on the bench and watch batting practice and then he'd, he'd get me a ticket you know I'd go up into the stands and watch a game and then wait for him afterwards and and then I used to tell all the, all the kids who got a thrill that I got to drive Frank home after the game I thought god what a thrill here you know you're 17 years old and you get to drive Hondo you know the watch home after the after the ball game you know and uh one of the stories I'd, I'd tell Ted Williams was a manager of the 
Washington Senators at the time, and I'm sitting on the bench watching batting practice. He comes to sit and watch batting practice from the visiting team. And the visiting team's manager was Dave Bristol, who was the youngest manager in baseball at the time. He was 38 years old. And Casey Cox, a pitcher with the Senators, walked in. He was kind of smugly says to Ted Williams, he says, hey, Skipper, he says, uh, their manager throws batting practices. How come you don't throw batting practice? Ted Williams, I'm thinking, geez, what's he going to say? And Ted Williams looks at him and says, when I was 38 years old, I hit 388. Well, the conversation ended right That's there. All but that was, That's all you had to say. That's all you had to say. That was, it was, it, but you know, then again, you, you know, you look back and say, God, I got to sit next to Ted Williams, and sometimes I, I always have an expression. Sometimes you can't see the picture because you're within the frame, and so many times we never step back and look at the magnitude of what we do or, or how special some of those times were because you're just in it, and and it goes fast and. And you don't actually understand uh, uh, how how grateful you know you you can be in, in some of the great people you get to meet along your way along your path. And I'm sure, and even yourself, you know, when when you you know all the people that you've run into along the way, and all of a sudden say, "Gosh, look at the look at the uh, the um, phone book I have, and, and see the people in it, and, and how special they are." And uh, that that I think for my career has been. Uh, the most amazing thing, I, I, I always say a little kid from Edith and Ellis' son from Silver Spring, Maryland, got to have dinner with, you know, or got to know Frank Howard I started out with, and then, you know, starting with the Pittsburgh Pirates in the minor leagues, got to, got to meet and be around Willie Stargell and, and, and guys like that, and then all of a sudden go to the Yankees, and then have the people that you've, you grew up uh, with their baseball cards, and all of a sudden, their catfish hunter is introducing himself to me, telling me it's nice to meet you and welcome to the Yankees. And you go, oh my gosh! And Thurman Munson and and Bucky Dent and Reggie Jackson and uh, Greg Metals and and uh, Mickey Rivers and Oscar Gamble and you know the the list goes on. Tommy John, Goose Gossage. So it, it, you know you you look back now and say, gosh, it was an amazing time of of your career. But again, you know. You, Sometimes it just passes by and you, you don't realize and, and, and uh, hopefully you appreciate it at this point now. Well, you were, you were uh, important to them as well because a, a trainer has to make sure that this, the athlete is ready. So you sat in the dugout, you watched everything. You watched everything and you, you saw exactly how they, how they ran, what happened if they limped because you had to make sure that, that they were ready to um, to take care of what they were supposed to do, they were the multi-million dollar athletes. They were the ones who who stole bases or or or, or pile up strikeouts. And you've got all the fans and and the manager, and 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 they looked at you and 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 they were saying, "Is this person ready? Can he do the job?" You know that, that's a great point. And I tell my a lot of the minor league trainers in later years. I, I was mentoring some of the minor league athletic trainers with the Cardinals, and I, I used to say, the first thing you have to do is for for the player to respect the job that you're doing and the, and your abilities. I said, do you understand that that you as an athletic trainer, you know, think of yourself. You're as good at what you do as they are at what they do. Exactly. And a lot of them, they, they do respect that, and they and they understand it. That, but but I think one of the most important things I would always emphasize is just make sure you show the players how much you care, not how much you know. Well, that's important. Sure, 
Now, you know, you, you, it was a long journey from originally the minors to the majors. Now, you worked with the Shreveport, Louisiana team. Yeah, Shreveport captains in, in, uh, in Shreveport, Louisiana. That was, that, was, uh, that was interesting. It was, you know, of course, that was the, the, the deep south in, 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 19, in the mid-70s, and uh, we, had, we took bus trips. Bus trips. It was a Texas league, and we used to take 19-hour bus trips from Shreveport to El Paso, and we'd go from Amarillo to Jackson, Mississippi, and you know uh, these long bus trips. You know, you get drunk, sober, and drunk on the same bus trip sometimes. Across Texas, you know, you, you you wake up six hours later, you think you're in the same place. You know, it's a. But that was those are times, and you meet friends, and and you you bond with people. Uh, because you're all in it together. And, you know, you, you have uh, 22, 21, 22 teammates back then, and, uh, you know, they're all in it to, for a common goal. And a lot of them, you know, they're striving to make the big leagues and, and understand that that the statistics show that I think it's about 8% of people that play in the minor leagues get to play in the big leagues. So understand that, like, 90% of these guys, kids are going home. But they got to enjoy what they're doing, and I always say that if to the minor leagues when I when I speak to them, if your greatest failure in life as a minor leaguer is that you don't make the big leagues, you're going to have a great life because it's an amazing trip just playing minor league baseball and how special it is, how how unbelievable to be a professional athlete and to enjoy that and the camaraderie and the team teamwork. That, that you learn and uh, working with uh, other people from all sorts of not only states but countries now that you know you have to blend with sure, certainly but you know when you uh, when you work with the Shreveport team uh, yeah. there was a game that they activated you as a player uh, well back then we only had a manager and, and a trainer so it was only myself and, and the manager um Back then, uh, Tim Murtaugh was a manager, and Danny and uh, Johnny Lippon were my managers in Shreveport. And we came to the end of the season, right? The last week of the season, we ran out of players. A guy got hurt. A guy got called up. One one had to had to leave for home. And and next thing you know, we're down to like nine players. And uh, I had played college baseball, and I, you know, in the minor leagues, you do a lot of things. And fortunately, I didn't know how to drive the bus, so I would have had to do that. But I, was, I would throw batting practice. I'd catch in the bullpen. I'd hit fungos. I'd do all that kind of thing. So the manager said, Barry, can, if we work out for public, could you help me if we needed a player? I said, sure, I'd be glad to. So I suited up for the last week and actually got eight at bats. You got and, uh, Yeah. You, got you, a, made, got you made it to hit. first base. Huh? You made it to first base. I made it to second base. I hit a double, actually. <laughs> I think the kid got released that pitched to me, you know. <laughs> but no, it was, you know, again, another thrill, a uh, time in your life you look back and say, God, you know, that someone said, I never got to play professional baseball, but I did play for a week, and I, you know, um, got, got an actual hit in the minor leagues, and and, uh, and then you I got get hit the letter that getting released from uh, from playing. You know, I still had a trainer's job, but you know, it was it was kind of funny. So it was a it was a, it was a big thrill. And then Shreveport was a neat little town. I uh, I really enjoyed the people there. I I enjoyed the town. Now the ballpark wasn't so hot. Spar Stadium at the time was this old ballpark 
where you know the mosquitoes would come in and they look like jet planes they were that, that big and if it rained too much the clubhouse would flood and we had a wonderful clubhouse guy an old gentleman named Alex Thomas and uh, Alex was just a classic he just he'd walk around with a little a stick and a little hook at the end of his stick and he'd pick up clothes and he'd do the wash and he was just wonderful these are just old time stories that you you know people that classic people that no one ever knows and the, and they're behind the scenes people that that really make make your life full and make uh, what what great about minor league baseball? Great, like Helen Robinson. Helen Robinson was was one of the neat people that that uh, in sports. People that know professional baseball through the uh, gosh seventies and eighties know that Helen Robinson was the uh, um, switchboard operator at. Fenway Park. She had a reputation of being the toughest and meanest lady in baseball because you could not back then in the seventies. You know there wasn't cell phones. She was the gatekeeper, wasn't she? Huh? She was the gatekeeper. She was the gatekeeper. If you ask people like you know the Ted Williams of the world and all those people, they thought the world of her. She was, she was something. She back you know back then she had those uh, the switchboard had the the things you plugged in you know <laughs> like you like you see in, in the old movies yeah. and uh, so she could I think listen to all the calls that the owners would make or you know could uh, listen to them because she was the one that connected you through to to whoever you wanted to talk to and so no one could make a phone call because. They had a payphone right outside the the locker room, and she would just say, "Use a payphone." I think Mr. Steinbrenner, the owner of the Yankees, once asked her, "I need to make a call." She said, "There's a payphone outside." She says, "Says I'm George Steinbrenner." She says, "I know who you are." She says, "I'll have you fired." She says, "You can't fire me. I don't work for you." <laughs> said, "Who use a payphone like everyone else?" And so I thought. I said to Charlie Moss, the, the great trainer for the Red Sox, I said, "Charlie, I said, how come?" You know, Helen gives everyone such a bad time. She said, well, you know, people are tough on Helen. They just make demands. She's actually a very nice lady. So I thought to myself, something my parents, my mom and dad always say, just just be nice to people, you know. And, and so uh, there's a florist shop in the in the downstairs of the Sheraton Hotel where we stayed in, in Boston. I bought $5 worth of flowers, and I brought them to the park that day, and I put a note that said, Helen, hope you're having a nice day, Barry, the trainer for the Oakland A's. So I get a call from Helen. She says, Barry, thank you. It was so sweet of you. So oh, you're welcome, Helen. I know you, you know, you work hard. So every time I come in town, the first day of the series, I'd send $5 of flowers up. We used to go to Boston three times a year. So she would always call and thank me and then say, Barry, do you need anything? I said, no, Helen, I really don't. And thank you very much. One day I was in a jam. Uh, I needed to call a doctor. It was an emergency. I, Helen, I hate to do this. She says, Barry, what do you need? I said, I got to call my doctor. She says, sure, Barry, I'll put it right through. <laughs> I went. <laughs> for, I said, it's amazing what $5 worth of flowers got. For 15 years, I got calls through that I don't think anyone else got you know, through Helen. She, she, she was wonderful. She was a gatekeeper, and she was one of those behind-the-scenes people, the people from Boston and people in baseball knew exactly who she was. And But, uh, you know, thank thank goodness my mom and dad taught me well to just be nice. <laughs> It's true, and it served you well throughout your entire career. And, oh, thank you. And, and, and a career in which you got to sit down and have dinner, breakfast, lunch, din uh, meals with some of the greatest sports figures uh, of, of our time. 
Yeah, I've been very, very lucky. You know, I've, I've gotten to be friendly with uh, guys like Sandy Koufax and Joe Namath and Charles Barkley. And, and one of the great dinners I had, uh, I always I always tease with Tony, I, my, one of the chapters of the book is like Dinner with Tony because Tony Lewis had some amazing people come out to the ballparks and amazing friends and because and, he had such a varied interest in, in, in entertainment and sports, but other sports also and I've had fortunate to have dinner you know with the, with the Bobby Knights and the and the um, John Havlicek's and Bill Belichick's and you know so uh, it was all you know Tony and all these people dinner you got to be friendly with these people but one of the great dinners we had was with Neil Armstrong the astronaut and that was a real special dinner and he was just a wonderful wonderful person he would tell just great stories about about the moon and and his, and you know being an astronaut and things like that and people would ask him all kind of questions and at the end i said i said you know i asked him a couple questions like what the weather was up there and yeah. things like that and, you know i thought at the end geez maybe some of the questions i asked no one asked so i asked i said mr armstrong has anyone asked a question that wasn't asked before and i'm thinking maybe one of my questions he goes no barry he says i've heard all those questions a thousand times he says the reason there wasn't a new question was because there wasn't an 11 year old at the table he says i get every every new question from a 10 or 11 year old kid but he was he was terrific and that was um that was really a special dinner and uh and uh those are the things that you look back and 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 they're iconic people not only in uh you know, in, in sports, but in, in America. And that's why you wrote the book. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I uh, I used to have dinner with, um, with uh, uh, of course, Mark McGuire is a, a great teammate. And, and we used to love the TV show, The Practice. Okay, it was a, a lawyer show back back in the early 2000s. And, and uh, we, we would watch it religiously. Every Sunday night, we would watch The Practice. And so if, if we weren't watching it together, he'd be in his hotel room, I'd be in my room, or he'd be at his house, I'd be in my house. And we call each other like at halfway, who do you think did it? You know, do you think she did it? I don't know, I think he did it. You know, it was like, gosh, if people could only listen to that, they were, like they think we were, you know, little gossip, you know, people. So, so anyway, so one night I get a call from Mike Saunders, who was a trainer for the New York Knicks for a long time, one of my really close friends now. And he, <laughs> He says, Barry, I need to talk to you. I said, Mike, you called me in the middle of my favorite show. I, I, I can't talk. He goes, what are you watching? I said, I'm watching the practice. He says, well, you gotta, when you go out to L.A., you got to call Mike Bataluco and, and, and give him a call. I said, one of the stars of the show. Yeah, you know Jimmy Berluti, who was a, that was his name in the show. He goes, yeah, he's a big Nick fan. He's a you know he's a big sports fan. He said, you. I said, Mike. First of all, I can't call him. I you know I'm Edith and Harold's son, and he's a TV star. I I can't call him. So, anyways, a couple weeks later, I go out. The, we were out in L.A. I got a phone call. I'm a three two three number. I said, who's calling me? Answers the phone. Says, Barry, uh, this is Mike Bataluco. I said, oh my god! I hold the phone away from me. I pointed it like he's calling me. You know what a thrill! So Mike called me, and he ends up coming to the game. We came, we came good friends, and we used to go to dinner and lunch together. And he'd always bring Jonathan Shapiro, who was a writer uh, for the show, who wrote for uh, 
the practice, and then he wrote for Boston Legal. He brought, wrote for the Blacklist and now and Goliath on, uh, with Billy Bob Thornton. Uh, and he used to say to me, Barry, you got to write some of these stories down because we tell stories. He'd come out you know, with myself and McGuire and, and Tony, and he said, you got to write these down. I said, ah, you know, I'm not, I'm not a writer. He said, Barry, yeah. so several years after, he, he finally, each year, he said, Barry, have you written these stories down yet? I said, no. He goes, here, here's a number. Here's a lady. Uh, who's done some work with me, her name is Angela Shelton. She said, she's gonna transcribe your stories. She says, you gotta write these down. These, these have to be preserved. And so anyways, that's how it, that was the genesis of, this, the, of the book. And I, I called this lady, she started uh, transcribing all the stories either through my emails or calls or we've gotten together a couple times and, and the next thing you know, um, I put out a book which I least expected to do. It was one of the last things I ever thought I'd do was write a book, but it's been it's been fun. It's been exciting, and it's relived a lot of great moments. And I think I think a uh, lot of stories from the history of sports, of, of baseball, or whatever, need to be preserved. And and I tell all my young minor league trainers, and I tell all my kids when I talk to them, I said, take ninety seconds at the end of your day and write down who you met, what you said what you talked about, if you said something great, if you learned a great quote, if you learned a great uh, a drill in baseball or something like that, and write it down. Because at the end of the year or the end of five years, you're gonna be amazed at the journal you can you can have. And I wish, now I wish that I had written stuff down years ago. I would have had, you know, many, many more stories. You know, I think one of the, the great, uh, the stories that tellers was, was uh, Jack Buck. And Jack, uh, I used to give Jack a insulin shot every day for the last four years of his, of his life. And, and he would tell a story or a joke every night before the, you know, before the home game when, when I, I'd give him a shot. And I said, gosh, that's the book I should have written. <laughs> you know? And I would have called it A Shot of Jack. You know, because, you know, I mean, because, you know, and he would tell stories and jokes and, and think that's, and those are things, you know, that's when I, I regretted not writing down a lot of things. So, yeah, I think some of the stories, first of all, you can't tell because, you know, but, but those stories that, that, that you should preserve. And I, I think there's, there's historic people that you meet along the way that, that, uh, you know, our kids and kids of their kids would appreciate it. It's not just about eating the food, which was good, which you loved, which you didn't even look at the menu for because they, they knew you and they knew what you loved and what, and what you liked. But it was about having a quality conversation with intelligent people. Exactly, and that's that's the most fun part. And there, you know, I've you know, you, you have dinner with some of these people, and you, and you just stay quiet and just listen. You listen and learn. In fact, Tony has an amazing. Larusa has an amazing ability. All, all the people he brings, uh, basketball coaches and football coaches, and 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 people from all walks of life, and he have a notepad. You know, a little a note, whether he wrote it on a napkin, whether he wrote it on the, on the tablecloth, didn't matter. But if someone said something that he could use for his team, or for, you know, and he would always write it down. Uh, one of the neat dinners we had was, was General Hal Moore. Who, uh, General Hal Moore was a, a Vietnam veteran who, uh, the movie, uh, uh, We Were Soldiers with Mel Gibson. Mel Gibson played Hal Moore, and we had dinner with Hal Moore several times, and Tony would just just get so much information and neat stories from Hal Moore, and Hal Moore would, would talk to the team and, and, and tell all the guys that, you know, when you're in a rut and, and you don't think there's anything else, else 
to do, he'd always say, there's always one more thing. And Tony says, well, what if that failed? And Hal Moore would say, then there's one more thing. You know, and it was just great stuff from all these people that, that you just, that Tony would preserve and through writing these down. And I, and I always took that, that, um, you know, you, you can always learn from so many other people in so many walks of life to make, to make your, you know, make your journey so fulfilling. Well, you've got to be the kind of person that these people want to talk with and to. Well, I, I hope I was a good listener. And uh, fortunately, I was in the right place at the right time a lot of times. So, you know, I was very lucky to listen to these stories and, and experience some of the you know, some of the stories and have some great teammates. And, and I think back then in the 70s and 80s, uh, because there was no cell phones and social media, uh, there was a lot more things that guys did that probably wouldn't be uh, reported on correctly now or, <laughs> or, or would get out virally and probably wouldn't be so complimentary but it, but they were they, we had such characters you know back then um, with uh, you know I mean Thurman was great uh, Oscar Gamble was one of my favorites Goose Gossage and I still stay in touch with Bucky Dent a lot we 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 dine together and you know uh, one of my uh, good friends who was an announcer with us in Oakland was uh, Dick Stockton and and, and we would sit down and tell stories and, and we'll look at each other and go guys how lucky we're, we're, we tell these stories and all of a sudden we realize how lucky we were you know to, to experience some of these things as almost an outsider but but, but, an in, but having the inside track being an outsider because we weren't a player and we didn't you know but but we were there and we we experienced it and we were a, a part of it and and those those things last forever oh it's certainly what you know when when you were uh, your, your classmate ron mclean uh, a triple-a trainer for the cincinnati reds uh, told you he, he said I, I think there's a job opening in the pirate organization why don't you apply for it at yeah. the time you had no experience you didn't have a degree you weren't certified had not finished your education but you left Who would school. Give you a job? Yeah. Who was about to give that guy a job? Yeah. But what did you promise your dad? I told him I'd go back to school. I, I said, I, brought, I called him. I said, hey, Dad, I got a job with the Pirates. They called me one morning. Murray Cook, Pete Peterson, Murray Cook called from Pittsburgh, said, we'd like to offer you the double-A job. And I said, sure, I'll take it. I didn't even know. It, you know, they could have said, now, it, you know, you have to pay us $500 a month. And I said, sure. Yeah. You know, I, I was gonna, you know, I was gonna take, and I was making big money back then. You know, I was in the end they, they were, uh, and uh, the pirates offered me six hundred dollars a month. Wow! I know for five months, that's three thousand dollars <laughs> a year. I was gonna make plus. They were giving me two hundred dollars for spring training, fifty dollars a week. So you know, I was thinking, Dad, look, I'm, you know, I'm styling, you know. So Dad, he said, Yes, son. He says, But you haven't finished your grad school. You have to promise me we'll go back and finish your graduate program. I did, I went back to Indiana, and, and I'm fortunate I did because I was part of the 74-75 team that, uh, that coached my head, it was 31-1, and one. and then the following year, I, I came back to finish my degree, and was a small part of the 75-76 uh, team that was actually the last undefeated college basketball team. Um, well, that's tremendous. So that was, that, was, that was special. So I did, I did finish my degree, and you know, that, that made the folks happy. I, I have to look sometimes on the wall and say, "Hey, I did, I did graduate." You know, I, I do. I see that 
that uh, degree on the wall. <laughs> and then at the end of the 70s, you got a big shot at the, at the what's arguably the storied team of the century. Yeah, I was with uh, I was in Columbus, Ohio, uh, in AAA with the New York with the uh, Pittsburgh Pirates. It was my last year with the Pirates. Uh, with in 1978, I was with the Pirates, and uh, the Yankees were moving in to Columbus and the Pirates were moving out. Well, the owner of the Columbus team, his name is George Sisler Jr., whose dad was a Hall of Fame great player. Right. Uh, he said, Barry, we'd love to keep you on, and uh, we'd, we'd like to offer you you know, the job and uh, with the Yan- when the Yankees come in here, and we're, we're, we'll give you $9,000 a year. I went, oh my God. I'm thinking 9000 I, I might be able to buy a Rolls Royce, you know? I mean, <laughs> at the time, you know? But anyways, it worked out fine, and, and I said, yeah, I do. So I, I accepted the job with the Yankees in, in AAA in Columbus. That was like in November of, of 78, and then the 1st of February, um, I get a call from, uh, from the Yankees, and uh, Al Rosen was a general manager at the time, and he said, Barry, our assistant trainer, Herman Schneider, has just taken the head trainer's job for the Chicago White Sox. We want to know if you'd be interested in coming to New York as the assistant trainer, or would you rather stay in Columbus? I went, well, let me think. <laughs> I said, no, I, no, I'd be glad to come to New York. So I ended up going to New York as the assistant trainer. That was That's how I got my break. And I say, you know, I, I always say that kids, you really got to get lucky to get places yet but there's an old expression you gotta be lucky to get there but good to stay and I think uh, you know you just have to get your break along the way and you never know when when you're gonna get that break you never know who's gonna open that door and and you just work hard every day and and, and take your chance and, and don't get frustrated by by the disappointments or the setbacks because sometimes it's, you know you, you're so close to succeeding right before you give up you know, and, and so just don't give up. You never give up. So yeah. after the minors, tell us what it was like to step onto the field in a major league park with the Yankees and know that you are part of the biggest show in town. What was that feeling like? Well, first, I, I got to the ballpark. My first day, I got to the ballpark so early the clubhouse wasn't even open. Mm. I, I think I got there at 6 in the morning. Oh. You know what I mean? Because I Can't thought, wait. God, I don't want to be late, you know. So I get there so early, and, and it wasn't up. So the runway down to the dugout, I sat in the dugout and just watched and looked out, and I thought, gosh, has there been anyone great that sat in this dugout before me? I think so. No, I, you know, I, I thought of all the people that sat up and could see the, you know, the outfield and know the monuments out there and, and, and the people that have been before you that have been on this field and on this bench and to think how great it was. And, and uh, you know, the first day is pretty exciting. You're standing out on the field and Bob Shepard is the, uh, is the uh, announcer. He's got a big, deep voice. And if you've ever been to a Yankee game, you always hear Bob Shepard. In fact, I think um, Derek Jeter, after uh, Mr. Shepard had passed, always used that name, uh, always used his voice when he would come to bat. You know, it was just a, a distinctive voice. And you're standing out there, and Yogi's next to you, and Gene Monahan, the head trainer, and, and you're standing on the, and he says, Barry Weinberg, and you step out, you know, and you think, oh my gosh, this is a thrill. So after the game, the funny story is I, I go out with my mom, my dad, and my, my mom's sister. And and my mom says, uh, boy, my mom's sister says, your dad was so proud of you. 
says, you stepped out on the field and my, your dad looked at your mother and said, Edith, this is the second happiest day of my life. Mm. And my mom's is beaming now. And, and <laughs> my aunt right on cue says, oh, Harold, what was the happiest day of your life? And expecting, you know, the day I was born, the day we got married, mm. my dad looks out and says, the day I got discharged from the Navy. history and so this is 79 so he's you know he's in his he's probably in his 80s at the time you know and uh what a i mean what a spectacular spectacular individual we go to dinner and 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 he talked about stories about garrig and ruth and and he loved Lou garrig and he loved he loved roger and uh you know so it, it was just just fascinating stories again you know i should have written them all down but but just to, to absorb those and listen to them, and and uh, Pete, uh, my first my first uh, uh, old timers day it was a great day in Yankee Stadium. Old timers day, you know, is classic. I'm not sure many teams ever have them anymore, you know. But old timers day was very special, and I go in, and they, all the old timers would share a locker. My first year, I shared it with Roger Maris. And that was that was special, you know. Can you imagine? Pete was that thoughtful, and and to put someone that special, you know. And uh, so it was a, it was quite an experience. I, I always tell people, they, "How would you like your Yankee experience?" I said it was great, but I was too young and stupid. I, you know, I was just, you know, I wish I had more experience and and could could have, uh, you know, just just been more aware you know it was such a, a neat experience and, and such a uh, like you say a story franchise that, that but but those memories and those friends i still have I'll, you know you'll never forget i still stay in touch with rick Sarone and, and bucky Dent and you know and, and i see tommy john at golf tournaments sometimes and and nettles and and you know you still see some of those guys around and uh and you look back and you see what special teammates and what special people they were to influence your life like they did. And there you are, surrounded by the greats in the dugout. But you had a job to do. And you've said, if I'm sitting around doing nothing, then something, <laughs> then something good is happening. What did you mean uh, by that? Well, the athletic trainer is always the, the bearer of bad tidings. You know, I mean, 
the only time that you talk to the manager sometimes is say, hey, so-and-so's hurt or so-and-so's, you know, not feeling good, you know. And so if you're sitting around doing nothing, then something good's happening because no one's hurt. You know, if, if if I don't have anything to report on, guess what? Everybody's healthy and every you know everyone's coming good. Because a lot of times people don't. I mean, the manager didn't want me to come in and say, "Hey, uh, guess what? Uh, Albert Pujols feels terrific today." Was there ever a, was there ever a time when uh, a player did not want you to approach them because they didn't want anybody to know that that they were hurt, but you saw something that made you want to go out there? Yeah, I think you know you have, you also have, you understand you have a responsibility to the team and to the player. You know, you you got to some many times you have to think with your head, not your heart, because you want them out there too, and they want them out there. And and many times the, the hard part is to um, is to make sure that that you're doing the right thing for the person and the player. You don't want to sacrifice, you know, put them in one game that's going to cost them three weeks. You know, you'd rather rest them that one day to to preserve them. You know, I always the one thing Pony said to me when I joined the Cardinals in 1998. He says, "Barry, I need to keep McGuire healthy this year. We've we've got to keep him." You know, I said, well, "Okay." So I I sat down one one day and I I took the schedule and I looked at all the off days. Okay, and I thought, you know, if you know, because back then there was about three or four cities that had AstroTurf, you know, so, and, uh, you know, it's tough places to play, so, you know, on his body. So I said, Tony, I said, if you can play Mark no more than six consecutive days, okay, with the schedule and days off, he'll take 11 days off during the whole course of year, he'll play 151 games for you. And, and he said, that's perfect. I said, great. So, in theory, was that was perfect, wasn't it? He played. He played 151 games. That was year 1998, and as you know, he hit 70 home runs. But uh, but what happened is that uh, you know Tony occasionally play him the seventh day, but give him a day off, and and sometimes give him a day off around the day off, or give him a, a game off around the day off, give him two days off. You know, so it worked out fine until we got to one week where we, we played a consecutive week, and then we were heading to Philadelphia. And I said, Tony, we need to give him Friday off, you know, because uh, you know it's, it's it'll be it'll be like his eighth day in a row. He said, oh, Barry he says they got a lefty pitching. You know, I, I can't rest him. I said, Well, then rest him Saturday. He said, No, nah, I can't do that. We're the game of the week. Can you imagine resting Mark McGuire on the game of the week? Mm. You know, on national television. So I go, that'd be like nine or ten days in a row. Because I promised to give him Sunday off. I said, okay, give him Sunday off. Anyways, that Saturday, Mark hits three home runs. Amazing. All right. So as we're going out to congratulate everybody, we win the game. I I see so tugging on my shirt, and it's Tony. He goes, Barry. He says, you make sure you tell the press why he's not playing tomorrow. Yeah, and he didn't play. And actually, won the game. I look back in the records, and we did. We won that game. But, but that's the that's the hard part when you have to tell a manager that, you know. But again, and I tell tell these kids, I said, look, you got to do the right thing for the organization and for the player. And he may not think it's right, but at, at one point they they realize the right thing to do. And so many times, um, you know, uh, the guys they, they want to play and and. And that's the hard part when they really want to play, and, and you in your heart and and your you know, mind think, you know, this isn't the right thing physically for him to do, and, and so you have to make those tough decisions. But that's what you're paid for. 
That's the responsibility you have. It's not a pressure. I looked at it and said, boy, you're under a lot of pressure. No, I'm not. I just have a lot of responsibility. And if you assume that responsibility, then, then you know, the pressure becomes a lot less. And then you decided to write a book. So let's talk about <laughs> Eating My that. Way Through Baseball. Where can we find it? It's on Amazon, but you can go to my website, eatingmywaythroughbaseball.com, and uh, be glad to sign them for you, uh, Amazon or Kindle or, you know, on those websites. But, now, uh, yeah, it's easy, eatingmywaythroughbaseball.com. And and this is your first book, and I'm, and I'm sure there's first, another one in there somewhere, but it, be, no, it became I, a finalist in the Indie Book Awards. It was a finalist in the Best Book Awards. You're no, rolling maybe. here. Book Award was for um, uh, nonfiction, and the uh, uh, best book was for sports. I was I was thrilled. I mean, when we got that call, I was I was thrilled because I'm thinking people probably think who's this guy that wrote these, you know. And uh, I, I was excited because you know it just comes from the heart. The book just came from the heart and the stories that that you experience. And and then uh, I'm very lucky and and very fortunate. People enjoyed it, and uh, and. All the people I've gotten wonderful responses from from so many people, and uh, I got wonderful, wonderful uh, endorsements, uh, you know, for, for the book from everyone from uh, George Will to the Mannings to Michael Ruzioni to you know uh, Charles Barkley and Joe Namath and and uh, you know Sandy Koufax and Tony and Vince Gill and you know so wonderful people, Burke Bentley along the way who. who it impacted my life, but also knew some of the stories and knew, you know, uh, knew my my trails and my journey, and 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 were happy to to uh, to uh, contribute. And Joe Buck wrote a wonderful, wonderful uh, a forward to the book. In fact, the, the great part about Joe's forward, he, he really special. But someone brought it up who read, read the book said, "Barry, they love Joe's because." Uh, for because it says it starts out about sitting down at a table looking at somebody and telling stories and conversing and telling us how our day was instead of uh, on, a, on a phone on Twitter on a Facebook on a, you know what I mean uh, either head in a telephone or an iPad you know we actually sat down and, and discussed things at dinner and that was the great part about going to dinner with all these guys we didn't have iPads and, and you know and phones back back then we just we had to talk we had to converse we had to tell stories and that's kind of how the book materialized and then there was the tipping tell us a story about Billy Martin's tipping tell, <laughs> tell us about the old Pinnacle Park Steakhouse in Arizona Steakhouse and Billy's things up. Now back then, back in the early 80s, there, you know, Phoenix wasn't like it is today. All you know, with the nice progressive and nice roads, we had to go this one lane road out to Pinnacle Peak, and it take us a long time. And he just had this. Uh, they they had these uh, ties. If you wore a tie, okay, they would they would cut it off. And so always, it, it, first time people say, "Oh, hey, now make sure you wear a tie," you know. <laughs> No, he gets out. But that bartender, they did that, you know, he's teasing because he's just an, an old fellow and he had a few teeth missing, missing it. And so uh, uh, the joke is that by the time Billy left spring training, he had a beautiful set of teeth. He was, he, t- Billy used to take care of him so much. Billy was very generous. He was, he was really a, an amazing guy, an amazing manager, and very generous generous guy and uh, they used to tease it that by the time Billy left spring training 
that bartender had a perfect set of teeth. You can't say anything after that. That's just that's perfect. That's wonderful. You know, Nicholas, Jack Nicholas said of uh-huh. you, he, he surrounded himself with people who shaped baseball and sports history and people who are going to pick up the check because he won't. You know, and I, you know, he, I tell you what, he's such a, a delight, a wonderful man and, and such an iconic person. I've gotten to be friends with him through Scott Polly, who's who runs his, uh, his organization and, uh, and, and, he, you know, he's so funny that that's a, it's such a funny thing, you know, and and uh, yeah, I appreciate it. He said, "I hope you're not, I hope he's not upset." He told Scott, "I said, are you kidding me? Upset? You know, it, it's hilarious, and it, it, it adds humor because all these people, you know, whether it's Tony or 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 Jack or or Sandy or." And they all have this wonderful uh, light uh, side, especially you know the one that you know to expect is Bill Belichick. He's he's a deli- boy. He's a wonderful person with a great sense of humor and and very you know engaging. And you know if you have dinner with him, you know some people think oh they just see what you see on television or or what the press. You know Tony's the same way. They think Tony's a very stiff, not not fun. And, and a lot of guys. If you ask players that have played against Tony and then come play for him, they go, "God, we didn't know he was this funny." You know, Tony. You know, he's got a great sense of humor, and he, you know, and but you know, during the game, he's got a straight face, and you know, but he's still funny. I, I always tell the, the funny stories of Tony. You know, he's such a straight face, but he, he loves golf and he loves the Ryder Cup or the Presidents Cup. He loves competitive type things that are team sports, okay? So it always September or something when, when one of those events were happening, you know, that that would be on during the day and, and about middle of the game he'd go, Barry, get down here. And now the players are going, geez, what's what's he gonna say? He'd he whisper something in my ear and I'd go up to the clubhouse, you know, and I'd come right back down, I'd whisper something in his ear. And now the players are going, What happened? Did someone get traded? Is you know, what, is something happening that we don't know about? No, Tony just wanted to know who was winning the Ryder Cup. He wanted to know how Tiger was doing, how Phil was doing. You know what I mean? Was, you know, it, it, you know, he had a wonder. He, Tony's got a great sense of humor, and you know, and uh, you didn't uh, just sit down with people from baseball. It was in the entertainment industry as well, as well country music. Yeah, I have I have a lot of friends in country music. It started with my friend Nick Hunters. You know, God bless him, passed away years, several years ago, but uh, he was a big Oakland A's fan. And uh, and when I was at the A's, he, he came to a game and our PR guy said, you know, Barry, you're a big country music fan. He said, this is Nick Hunter, he's the vice president of Warner Brothers Records. So Nick and I became friendly and he introduced me to gosh, you know, Hank Jr. and, and Travis Tritt and, and the Mitty Gritty Dirt Band and, and uh, you know, just, Oak Ridge Boys, all these wonderful, wonderful people. And then uh, one of my close friends now has become Steve Hodges, who at the time was was with Capitol Records. And, and a friend of mine who I met uh, named Steve Warner, a uh, country singer, was on a bus with Steve, who was working for that company, Capitol, and said, you know, you got to meet my friend Barry Weinberg. So anyways, we met, and now we've been great friends. And, and I've got to meet all the, his artists through Capitol and, uh, and now Sony Records and, you know, people like... like um, Oh gosh, uh, Darius Rucker and and, and um, Keith Urban and and Little B- Big Town and and uh, Lady Antebellum and uh, Dirk Bentley and 
just you know uh, uh, various and you know it's 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 networking you know and what happens is people like sports and sports people like music and so you go see these people and they like sports they come to the game and and you end up you know with, with friendships and and there's barriers that you don't have to break down with them because they understand this the, the profession you're in, you understand the profession that they're in, and and so we've, we, uh, Vince Gill and I have become very, very close friends over the years. And uh, and uh, tell us about the tell us about the national anthem story with Vince Gill. Pardon me. Vince was supposed to sing the national anthem before a World Series game in Atlanta. Yeah, that's a great story. How did he get there? <laughs> Vince, Vince tells a story. He's, 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 he just did a uh, show, and I think it was with, with Reba McIntyre, but he did a show and he's, he had to rush to, you know, he flew in and took a limo to the, to the event, and uh, the limo breaks down about a block from Atlanta Stadium. So Vince, as nice as Vince is, uh, he's, he's pushing, help the driver push the limo off the side of the road so you, you know, get it out of the way, right? And now he rushes, he's going up to the gate and he says to the guy, he says, I'm Ben Skill, I'm here to sing the National Anthem. He's like, are you kidding, buddy? He says, I just saw you pushing that limo. You know? <laughs> he finally convinced me he was Ben Skill. So he, he goes to sing the National Anthem and, and uh, he starts singing, he's brilliant singing. He says about halfway through the song, he, 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 forgot, a, he forgot one of the phrases, you know? And he, and he almost froze. And, but as he looked up, he sees this guy in the front row singing his heart, singing his heart out, you know. So Vince kind of said, "I just followed him along, you know. You know, I just followed his his, his lead because he was singing like crazy. So I just followed him, followed him till he got to the last, to the, he got to the last verse. I says, oh, say, can you see?' And he says, "Oh." And then the guy took a sip of his beer, and Vince said it was the longest "Oh" in the history of the Atlanta. So the guy started singing again. But he, he tells he tells it real fights. Vince is a great storyteller, and and uh, you know has been, been a tremendous friend and just a, a wonderful influence on on uh, and and a, a, just a wonderful uh, personality. You know, a, a lot of people have met a star or two during their life, but you've been, but you've not only met, but been around and spoken with. And had converse, deep conversations with with uh, a lot of these people, and uh, and you use those uh, in your motivational talks as well. Yeah, you know, I think you you learn a lot from a lot of people, you know, and and um, and you know, and you take, you know, I always say if you if you take a little bit from a lot of people, and all of a sudden you. You have a, a lot of good stuff, you know. You put it in a basket, and the, and the, the gold drops out the bottom, and and you get some some really neat stuff. I, I Tony had me do out real quick. Tony had me do a, a an unbelievable event for him back in about 1990. He said, "I need you to find out." And we were pretty good in Oakland, and but Tony always was always worried about this. You know, win once, and then you know, then then you can't can't win again. But guys that were perennial winners and he always said I, I want you to go to Bill Walsh Ronnie Lott Don Nelson and and John Madden and and ask them how do they perpetuate winning how do they constantly keep you know being successful year after year and Ronnie Lott real quickly said your best players have to lead by example 
He said, I wasn't the loudest player, but the way I practiced, the way I played, and the way I handled myself off the field, I was a leader. Bill Walsh, his coach, says, when your best players buy into your system, then everyone else follows. In the same way, you, you know, I mean, Brady buys into Belichick and, and Albert bought into what Tony did. And, you know, when your best players buy into what you're doing, then it's easy for the guys under you. And Tony always used to say, when your best players are your best guys, when your best players are your best people, you have a chance to be a great team. And that's really important because the clubhouse, you know, atmosphere and stuff like that is led by, by your better players sometimes. And, and if they're good people, boy, it's easy to, easy to follow. Uh, Don Nelson said, big players have to play big in big games. But you're going to find out that the little guy, there's a little guy that's going to come up and, and exceed expectations and make you really push over the top to be real successful. But those big guys have to play big and big games. And John Madden said one of the real neat things, and it's like that in, in any business, too. And I talked to uh, a friend of mine, uh, David Friedman, back in Maryland, had a um, speak to Deloitte Corporation, and I said, you know, one of the things, uh, John Madden said, never start where you left off, always start where you began. So many teams at the end of the season or at the end of a World Series say, hey, come on, boys, we're going to start right where we left off. Uh-uh. He said, start right where you began. In other words, go right back to the beginning. Go right back to your fundamentals. There's a reason you got there to that to that place to be successful. And it's not from where you ended up. It's where you started. And that uh, that transcends sports, too. I think people who are in business that, that have a good quarter or have a good half of a year, well, they, they don't, don't sit on your laurels and sit on your successes, they got to start and, and continue uh, to do what they did right the first time to continue that success. And I think that was, those are some of the little things, you know, there's a lot of things, but those always stand out as some of the things you listen to other people and, 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 and take with you. And, and uh, hopefully, you know, the things I, I say to some people say, gosh, that was a, you know, that was an interesting topic or an interesting sure. uh, piece of advice. Just, just like I want to give a shout out to my friend Gene Marola who connected us for this, and you met Gene in uh, I think it was '79 here in uh, Fort Lauderdale during spring training. You said I, that he at that time. I, yeah, he, I have a friend of mine who said, "Do you like comedy?" I said, "Yeah, I love comedy." So she said, "Come on, well, I'm going to take you to this comedy show." And the guy's a huge Yankee fan because I was with the New York Yankees at the time. So I said, "All right." So I met Gene Marola, and we had become. I mean ultimately close friends, I said. And I, I tease him now that when I met Gene Marola, I don't know if you know that, Gene was the most famous person I met. I knew. Now he's not even on the third page. You know? <laughs> Sorry, Gene. But, I tease you know, you're not even on the, you're not even the third or fourth page of the, of the famous people I know. You know, I said, but back then, in 1979, in spring training, you, you probably were the most famous person I knew. Barry, yeah. I, you know, in the like thirty seconds we have left here, I want to thank you for uh, coming on with me to uh, to to do this interview. It's more of a conversation, and it's a high quality conversation, just like you've had with many of the big leaguers and the stars from around the country and the world. So I thank you so much for doing this and uh, uh, eating thank my you, way you through know, baseball. Make sure, make sure tomorrow and the next day you take sixty seconds at the end of the day and write down something someone said or you met someone interesting and and at the end of you it'll be an amazing journal and i think our paths you never know I always in my book I always, I always say life is an amazing journey enjoy every meal and right now we have to enjoy enjoy ourselves i think there's a a, a, 
um, a much better year coming, I, I would think, and uh, enjoy every minute of life and, and um, you know, just uh, enjoy your friends and, and tell them, you know, take time to tell them you love them. Thank you, Barry. This is Buzz Fleischman, and that's On the Record and Off the Wall. <laughs>